All right, our campaign is called Resilient Christianity. We're going through the book of 1 Peter, and we've been in this for a little while now. We took a break for a couple of weeks for the uh, food drive and for, not food drive, food pack, and welcome Sunday last week. Uh, but we're back. So we're back into 1 Peter, and we're calling this Resilient Christianity. We live in what's been called a post-Christian culture, meaning a lot of the norms, a lot of the assumptions, a lot of the values of our culture have shifted from being rooted in Christian values and ideas and Christian culture to something different, most often the self now. Um, but that change has happened in our lifetime, and it's happened pretty quickly, it feels like, for many of us. And we feel like we're just being tugged, <laughs> and we don't know how to respond. We don't know how to, uh, how to, how to live in this new culture that we find ourselves in. And so we're going to need to develop resilience, because living in those Christian norms in our broader culture, in all honesty, they make us soft, right? So that when things start to shift and change, now we don't have the resilience that we're going to need as these cultural norms shift. And so we've seen folks responding in various ways of retreating, of fighting back, and what we really need is resilience. And what Peter calls his... Uh, the churches that he's writing to, what he calls them to is a faithful presence within the culture. And we're going to see that directly today uh, as we get into the practical applications. Today we're coming to Peter's practical teaching, the like, specific things of like, do this, don't do this, that he wants to tell the people. The last few weeks as in this campaign, we've been going through the theology of it, which is how the biblical authors in the New Testament especially tend to write. They give you the theology up front. This is what grounds the ethics and how you live. And now, in light of those ethics, live like this. And we, in our uh, efficient Western consumerist culture, we like to just go to tell me what to do. <laughs> right? Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Whereas the Bible speaks much more strongly to, no, you need to know why you do what you do. All right? That is how the ideas communicated here in Scripture will be translated into our modern life and culture, is if we really understand the theology so we have to get the theology behind it. It's not just do this, it's why should you do this? And the theology that we've been talking about and that Peter has expressed is that we are, as believers, exiles elected by God and in a covenant relationship with him. Remember, he calls us elect exiles in verse 1. God has caused us to be born again into a living hope and into an inheritance so that no matter the suffering or the pain that we're experiencing, we have this hope and this inheritance that God has given us. And God himself is guarding us for the salvation that will be revealed when Jesus returns. And so we can have joy no matter the circumstances. We are to live in holiness in all things because God is holy. Remember he said Jesus is the cornerstone of the church that the church is built on. So we need to build our entire life upon Jesus as the cornerstone. And then he says we are the people of God. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Is what he says. So this theology is the basis of a resilient faith. Don't just jump right on ahead to the application, which I've spent more time on the theology than I will on the application to kind of counter our cultural bias. All right, that's why I do this. But now we come to the application. So how do we live in a culture that is resistant to the Christian faith, which if you think ours is, imagine living in first century Rome, uh, the emperor... And this time was most likely Nero. 
Not a nice dude, all right? <laughs> Christians had a tough go of things. And this is what Peter tells the Christians to do, how to contextualize their faith into a culture that is not friendly to the Christian faith. So how do we live in this new identity? Now we come to the practical teaching of it. He says, dear friends, I urge you, we're just going to read through it, and then I'll go back and walk through it, okay? So the first reading through, you guys probably going to have bug eyes and be like, oh my goodness, what did I just hear? All right, we'll walk back through it. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now he's addressing certain aspects of the Roman household. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All right. Lord, would you just bring clarity to this text, and Lord, help us to uncover the meaning of it, and apply it to our lives in ways that are true and practical and real. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's walk back through this. Again, like I said, whoa. <laughs> you guys are like, oh boy. I bit off way more than I can chew this week, so I'm sorry. Uh, we were late first service, as you could probably tell. Um, I'm going to try to move a little quicker, okay? Yeah. <sighs> You guys don't have confidence in me. I'm seeing the look in your eyes, and you're like, I'm not confident. It's fine. I'm not confident in myself, but I'm going to try. All right. It's important for us to get the cultural background of this and for us to understand what's happening here, obviously, right? As we're reading through this, there's a lot happening here. So what Peter's doing, he's addressing the Christians who have been exiled or dispersed from Rome to likely uh, to regions of Asia Minor, uh, present-day Turkey. Okay, so they've been kicked out. They didn't... <laughs> They weren't wanted in their current home. They're being persecuted in their new home. And so he's writing to them to encourage them. And he's encouraging them to live the way of Jesus in the context that they find themselves in. Okay. That's one of the beauties of the Christian faith, that it can be contextualized into just about any culture. And that's exactly what Peter's doing here. Okay. So he's going to talk to them about this general imperatives first. And then he goes into how do you live under the government's authority? Okay. Because I'm sure a lot of them wanted to rebel because they were kicked out. And they're like, we're, we're mad. We don't like these guys. Let's fight. And he's like, no, nah, don't do that, right? So he's giving them very practical teaching based on the context that they find themselves in. And 
Then he's going to address how they are to live in their household. The, the, Roman, the Greco-Roman teaching on how to live in your household was the staple, the foundation of their whole society. So if you threatened that in this day and age, like, you would be persecuted very harshly by the Romans, even more than the Christians were already. So we'll come to that. But he talks to uh, the members of the very, various members of the household, the slaves, or a prominent member of a Roman household. He's going to talk to wives. The one he leaves out that other uh, biblical authors bring in is the children. And then he's going to talk to husbands as well. So the wives and husbands conversation, that's the one Savannah and I are going to cover. So we're not going to cover that here because I really wanted you guys to get her her input on this as well, and not just hear it directly from me. I'll exegete the text, though. <laughs> so I did that on Friday in the devotional so that I don't have to do it that week, but uh, I'm not going to preach on it here today. We'll preach on it that week. All right, so let's go through it. Dear friends, I urge you, this is his exhortation to them, uh, and the, the term there is beloved. Like Peter has a close relationship with the people to whom he's writing. He loves them. He cares for them. As foreigners and exiles, he's already said, this is your identity. This is who you are. You're foreigners. You're exiles in this new community that you find yourself in. And he's applied that even to the whole Christian life, that we should view that as an exile, that this is not our home. Our home is in the new creation. And so we should feel at odds with just about any culture we find ourselves in to some degree, right? I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. I just love this description of sin. It's rooted in our sinful desires, and these sinful desires wage war against our soul. Soul here doesn't just mean the like ghost in the machine, like all the movies that we've seen, where like somebody dies and this like like mystical thing floats out of them, right? Like that's not that's not what he means. Soul is a reference to all of who you are. It, your soul is the deepest part of who you are, and it's often used to just describe your entire life, like all of the human person. So these sinful desires, they wage war against our souls. This is a vivid description of sin. And then where it's rooted in our desires, our passions. And we've all seen the effects of this war. We've all experienced the effects of this war on our souls. We feel disoriented in our soul when we're waging this war of what our passions desire. Do we desire the things of God? Do we crave the pure spiritual milk, as Peter has already said? Or are we desiring and pursuing our sinful desires that accommodate our flesh. We see this in things like addiction, in things like jealousy, rage, greed, or even sloth, or acedia, as the ancients would call it. The sense of, eh, I don't really care about anything. Right? It leads to a disoriented soul. When we see those things, we know that we're living in the desires of our sinful nature, not in the goodness of God. As Peter's already said, we've been ransomed from these feudal ways that we've inherited from our forefathers. So thanks be to God and glory to God for that, for saving us and revealing to us that the best way to live is actually through Jesus. And so we can say no to these sinful desires. And instead, we long for and desire the things of God that lead us to a whole life, the good life. All right. Man, I told you I'm going to be late and I get preachy already. Okay, sorry. 
1 Peter 2.12. I'm just supposed to be going through the text. I'll apply it later. 1 Peter 2.12. Live such good lives among the pagans, he says, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Okay, so this is, this is wild. Like, these guys have been sent into exile. They're being persecuted there in this new place. And he's saying, guys, like, still do good. And what he means by doing good isn't just your personal, individual mor morality. What he means by doing good is like do good for the community that you're in as well. Meaning like if your neighbor's hungry, feed them. If your neighbor is doing a housing project and they need help building, help them. Like make the community that you're in better. It's the same idea as uh, Jeremiah 29.7. When Jeremiah, speaking for God, says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Remember, God sends the people into exile. And then he says, do good for the community that you find yourself in even though it's uh, Babylon or Assyria, these like super sinful cultures, like make that community better is what Christians should do. When Christians go into a new community, when we live in a community, our community should be a better place because of the things that we do for them. So why? So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So when Jesus returns, it's likely what he has in mind, you'll see those good deeds that you've done and they'll glorify God. And when people speak evil against you, the idea is that the rest of the culture, when somebody's talking bad about Christians, the rest of the culture is like, really? Those guys? Like those guys who helped in the flood? Like those guys who built the playground or like cleaned up the playground? Like those guys who have done so much good for this community, you're talking bad about them? Like, eh, I don't think so. They'll be met with skepticism. That's the idea. And that's something that we as a church, I think, do really well. I'm really blessed by how you guys do that. Like, even today, there's folks going to, like, cut up a down tree of somebody in the church whose tree fell down for them. Like, you guys do that really well. Okay, so now he's going to get into some of the specifics, like we read. He's going to talk about the Christians and how they should relate to government. Remember, they've just been exiled. They've been kicked out. And now they're being persecuted in this new location by their government. And so there's probably a temptation for some of them to say, like, let's fight. <laughs> Like, let's go. We can take these guys. Like, we serve the guy who, like, raised people from the dead and, like, turned water into wine and, like, healed people. He's a good guy to have on our side. I think we can take him. His answer is going to be quite different. Um, and now, again, what he's doing is contextualizing the gospel, how to live out this new identity in the culture that you find yourself in. He's not going to try to upend the culture. So, our big idea... It's in a hostile culture, resilient Christians live as a faithful presence witness to the gospel of Jesus. That we should be pursuing this idea of a faithful presence. We're not fighting back against the culture. We're trying to bring good to our community. We're not running from it and retreating to the hills to live isolated and on our own. No, we live as a part of the culture doing good in the community where we find ourselves in, blessing this community, blessing people, and living under as best we can the rules that have been placed over us. So how do we do this in relation to government? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. We don't like the word submit, but it occurs all over in Scripture. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. This is probably the governing idea for the whole rest of the section. Submit, it doesn't mean obey in every circumstance. Okay? It's a general posture that we hold towards the government. Christians, we should be good citizens towards the government. Should obey the rules that we can obey, right? unless it conflicts with God's laws, which 
He indicates by saying, for the Lord's sake. All right. Now, there's a lot of nuance here, and I'm not going to be able to get into all of it because I don't have time. I'll talk about it more in the devotional. But he says, for the Lord's sake. Okay. So he's going to constantly remind them that they serve a higher authority, as we talked about last week. We are citizens first of the kingdom of God, and secondly, the kingdom of man. So we submit ourselves to the governing authorities because of the Lord, because that's what God would have us do. So we hold this general posture of submission. It's not obedience in every circumstance, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority, to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. It gives us a glimpse into the role of government, and this is its role, to punish evil, those who do wrong, and to commend those who do right, to bring justice. Right? Now, Peter's not naive. He knows that governments don't always do this. In a few short years, uh, they likely hadn't happened yet, but in a few short years, Nero is going to blame the Christians for the fire of the Rome, and he's going to light them on fire in the streets. He's going to persecute Christians harshly, severely. They're put in prison. They're beaten. They're already facing social ostracization. But soon, it's going to really ramp up. He's going to feed Christians to lions in the Colosseum just because they're Christians. Right. Peter's not naive to this. Peter has already been put in prison in Jerusalem for preaching Jesus by the governing authorities there. So he's not naive that they don't always do this. Right. But he's going to point us to Jesus as our example. That practice civil disobedience peacefully when the government tells you to do something that is contrary to the law of God. Otherwise, your posture is to be one of submission to the governing authorities and obey the rules and be good citizens. Okay. So that is our general disposition. We in America, we tend to go too quickly to the civil disobedience piece because <laughs> freedom, right? And we value the rebellion. But too often we've been more formed by that than by Jesus and by the word of God that says, in general, your posture should be to submit to governing authorities. Okay, moving on. Four, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Again, those who criticize you, the rest of the community should say, yeah, they, like, I know they've done a lot of good to our community, and they should be met with skepticism when you're accused of something, because your integrity should speak for itself. Your integrity should speak louder than you in retaliation. Okay? He says, live as free people. Again, some of these folks are saying... I've been set free. I'm a part of the kingdom of God. So now I can, I don't have to listen to the governing authorities. Now, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. No, we are a people who belong to God. We are people for God's possession, as he's already said. And so as a people who belong to God, who've been ransomed to become God's, now to become God's people, right? We've been ransomed from our former way of life to become God's people. Now we live for God. Show proper respect to everyone. Just give some general imperatives. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Those are pretty self-explanatory that we've talked about. And the ones that aren't, we've talked about a little bit in the past. Okay. So now, he's going to address slaves directly. Now, they, I can't, we can't address this without bringing up the question of why in the New Testament writers, they didn't speak more strongly against slavery. And... Uh, it's true that slavery was different in the ancient world. There was like indentured servitude, bond servants, where folks would perhaps 
not be able to repay a debt, so then they would enslave themselves for a time to repay the debt, and then once they repaid it, they'd be free. Like that existed. Slavery was a part of the Roman world and everywhere. There was, this was the cultural era that they breathed, right? But it's still wrong. Like they still viewed their slaves as property, right? So we kind of wish that the New Testament authors would have said more about it. But again, remember, he's, he's not trying to upend the culture here. He's writing to Christians to live the way of Jesus in the cultural framework that they find themselves in. Like, this is a different society. The Christians have no power. There's no government systems for change. And they don't, like, vote, right? And so he's encouraging them to live in the system that they're currently in, to contextualize the gospel within it. And we can't overstate how important the household codes were to the Roman society. This was the bedrock of their, whole, of their whole society. Everything was built on this. The authors like Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, Seneca, they wrote specifically about how the household was supposed to look. And so every new idea, every new religion that entered into Roman culture was assessed based on what Plato, Aristotle, and what those guys said. And if it wasn't in agreement with them, then they would have faced much more severe persecution. And so what Peter's encouraging them to do is live the gospel in the context that they find themselves in. He's not saying that slavery is right. Okay, He's not saying that it's good. He never says that anywhere. And in fact, what he's going to do is, well, first, his primary emphasis is the Christians that he's writing to, how can they, again, live such a good life among the pagans that they glorify God, how can they be so transformed by the gospel and live the way of Jesus? That's his primary emphasis. And he's not trying to bring social reform. But what ends up happening over the course of history and over the course of time, it's the long game, but it's the more permanent game. Through the changed lives of Christians, slavery eventually diminishes in the Roman world even. So he's just calling them to live the way of Jesus inside the system that they find themselves in. But he even fights back, or he resists it a little bit, and he pushes back against a lot of the cultural norms in fairly subtle ways, but still pretty significant. First, he addresses servants. And all of the other household codes, from Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, all those guys, they don't ever address servants. They address the letter to the man of the house and tell him how he's supposed to order his household. Okay. So Peter pushes back against that by even addressing and dignifying the slaves who are in the church. Which even the fact that there are slaves who have accepted Jesus and who are now a part of the church, and they're viewed as loving the brotherhood, right? Loving one another within the church. They're accepted in that community. That's countercultural even in of itself. That they're here listening to this is vastly countercultural. And this would have elevated them even in the congregation that Peter addressed them directly. And the second, he's going to call the actions of abusive masters unjust. Okay. Aristotle, he says in his household codes that no true injustice can be done against a slave. So again, we have to read this in the context that it's being written in. Other codes, they expected harsh treatment of slaves. Not only excused it, but expected it. And Peter calls it unjust. Third, he begins. He's first talking to slaves of the household. Again, you would expect him to start with the man of the house and only address him. But no, he talks to the slaves first. 
and he has the most to say about them. And then second, he reminds them of their primary allegiance to God. Uh, being mindful of God in verse 19, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. And in verse 20, he's going to say, in reverent fear of God, they're supposed to do this. Their higher authority is to God. And then finally, and this is most important, he's going to make slaves the paradigm for the whole Christian life. He has the most to say about them. And, okay, when I say that, don't, don't move by it too quickly, all right? He makes slaves the paradigm for the whole Christian life. Like, we should have that mentality. In verse 16, he's already said that we are all servants of God, right? So that's how we should perceive ourselves, that we are people for God's possession, he's already said. And so this idea is going to really butt heads with our cultural values. But again, we have to ask ourselves, are we more formed by the cultural values that we have as American citizens or the by the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus? That's the question I'm going to keep asking you over and over again. All right. It says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Okay, so now, to be clear, he's getting at our general posture, our general heart, the soul issues. This isn't a blanket requirement to stay in abusive relationships. Okay? He's writing to people who have, no, who have no sense of recourse, no opportunity for recourse within the system. This is not a blanket statement requiring that we stay in abusive relationships. But it is a statement of saying, like, even in that situation, don't do wrong. Okay? Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate and do wrong on top of the wrong that has been done to you. Remember, he calls it unjust. This is an injustice. This is wrong, right? But even living in the midst of that, how do we still do right? Don't repay evil for evil is what he's trying to say. No, we'll apply it more later. He says, to this you are called to continue doing right, even if you're being mistreated. Don't do wrong. Continue doing right. This is what you're called to do because... So he's not saying that they were called to slavery. Okay? He's saying continue to do right even in the midst of an injustice being done to you. Why should we continue to do this? And this is what we're called to do because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. This word example is stronger than example. It's not just something that we can like, oh, I like that, so I'm going to follow it. No, the idea is like uh, this word is used of what teachers would do in this culture to teach kids to write their letters. So remember when you were a kid, you had the dotted lines and you had to trace them out to like write your letters on the three level paper. I hated it because I wrote so small. Um, that's the picture of it is that we should mimic Jesus so closely. He's our example. He's our model. He's our paradigm. We should mimic his life so closely that we're like tracing our life after his. Okay, that's the picture. You guys get that? And what did Jesus do in the face of injustice and suffering? He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. He lived righteously. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He didn't respond and criticize back and call them names back. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What a statement. This has to be the bedrock of a resilient faith. Entrusting ourselves fully to God who judges justly, knowing that in the end, no injustice will go unpunished. And so if you don't receive justice now, what a comfort for all of us who have been the victims of injustice to know that no injustice will go unpunished. God is a God of justice, and he judges justly. And even if we suffer injustice now, he will bring justice in the end. That is a comfort because in this world, we face a lot of injustice. And so in light of that, how do we live in this culture? Even when we experience injustice and evil, we entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. And we wait for him to vindicate us. We don't respond and repay evil for evil. This is so hard for us, you guys. This is so hard for us to do because we so glamorize the retaliation in movies, media, and in our sinful nature. That's what we want to do. And trust himself to God who judges justly. Because through Jesus' suffering, this is what he was doing. And the apostles, as they were watching it unfold, could have had, they had no idea that this is what was happening. But now looking back, Peter's like, this is what Jesus was doing. And if he would have retaliated, if he would have called down legions of angels to destroy the Romans, if he would have raised an army to take on the Romans, none of this would have happened. We'd still be dead in our sins. Because what Jesus was doing was he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And he's quoting Isaiah 53 here which Isaiah 53, what a comfort to the people he's writing to. Isaiah 53 is the description, 700 years before Jesus, of the suffering servant, Jesus, Messiah. Just think of those words, the suffering servant. Jesus was our God, and he came to suffer and serve. And here he's writing to servants who are suffering. And he's saying, you're like Jesus. So continue to act like Jesus. And the purpose was atonement for our sins, that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. God had a bigger purpose in Jesus' suffering. For you were like sheep going astray. Band, you guys can come and get set up. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Gosh, I love this. <laughs> that is so good. What a good word picture from Isaiah 53. Like sheep going astray, wandering, sheep, helpless, Sheep aren't that smart, right? They're, they're not very self-sufficient, right? When they're out in the wild, they're vulnerable to wolves. They're vulnerable to attack from other predators. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus, through the cross, accomplished our atonement and our salvation when our faith and trust is in him. And so we have returned to the shepherd, the good shepherd, the overseer of our souls. The pastor, the elder, is what he's saying. It's primarily Jesus. And so we find ourselves protected, safe, secure in him, even in the midst of suffering, injustice, here and now. And so we can entrust ourselves to God and continue to do right. I'll come back up and apply this later. But for now, this is one of the hardest teachings in the faith. that We have to build our life on Jesus and his example, counter all of the cultural influences that push us to do otherwise. It's not easy. So Lord, would you help your people, inspire us 
to view Jesus as our paradigm and to live our life, to trace our life after him, to follow his example in all things and submitting to governing authorities and, Lord, to continue doing right even in the face of injustice and wrong. And entrust ourselves to you, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. In a hostile culture, resilient Christians live as a faithful presence witness to the gospel of Jesus. Remember, what Peter's primarily concerned about here is the reputation of the church in their current culture. And so he's calling them to live a way of righteousness and holiness in the culture that they find themselves in so that they have a good reputation among outsiders so that they will glorify God on the day that Jesus returns. That's what a faithful presence witness to the gospel looks like. And unfortunately, in our culture today, I would argue that evangelical Christianity has a negative reputation in our culture. And so, what we have to do is the hard work and the long game, play the long game, of building a faithful presence witness to the gospel of Jesus in our culture again. Not capitulating to the culture or to the world's values and views. We don't cave and give in to those. But also not running for the hills and retreating, staying engaged, doing good in our community, building back this reputation that Christians are good for culture. Christians are good for their communities. That requires discernment. It requires an unshakable trust in the God who judges justly. It requires us to pattern and model our entire life after Jesus. Even in the difficult things. As I said, this requires discernment. And this is such a difficult, the teachings of this text are so difficult to discern how to apply them to our modern culture today. Okay, because as I said, Peter, he's writing to a group of people, slaves specifically, who have no legal recourse for their action, for injustices done to them. They have no path of pursuing justice. They have no rights, right? And so he's writing to them to encourage them how to live the way of Jesus in the midst of this. And he's encouraging them that, hey, Jesus suffered injustice too. And so take heart, be encouraged, have hope. But of course, in our day, like we have legal recourse for injustices done to us. And so when there's an injustice done, we must discern and pray. Do we seek justice? Do we follow the legal recourses that are available to us? Or... Do we not? And that depends on the severity, right? It depends. There's a million different options of scenarios that I could run through here. For example, if somebody in business cheats you out of money, discern. Do you follow the legal recourse? Do you file a lawsuit or not? Could be cases where you decide God's calling you to forgive and let it go. Paul tells us elsewhere, in the church, wouldn't you rather be wronged if you're wronged by somebody in the church than take something to court, right? So that should be part of the calculus. But it is also part of the calculus that we can pursue legal recourse and pursue justice. Now, there's a difference between justice and vengeance, right? Justice is good, godly. Vengeance, wanting them to hurt like you hurt, that's evil, that's wrong. And that is a sinful desire that wages war against your soul and will destroy you and lead to hatred and anger and evil. Other cases, if you're the victim of abuse, call the police. 
Follow the legal recourse that's available to you. Seek protection, safety, nothing wrong with that. We have these legal recourses available to us, and so we should avail ourselves of those when we need to, especially if we're afraid for our safety. And so we have to discern. How do we apply this to our modern culture? And it can be challenging. We need discernment. We need the grace of God to do so and to do it well. But what we can also do is... Nuance this so much that it loses its actual force, right? So we can nuance it so much to say, well, ah, this, and then, but this scenario, that scenario, this doesn't actually apply. What's Peter actually saying? What's he truly calling the believers to do? And the condition of their heart and in their will, in their soul, that's what I think we're after here. And to have this posture of meekness, of humility, of submission, is a part of the Christian life that we should have. Because that's what Jesus did. Right? Tells us to pattern our life after Jesus. Again, Jesus could have called down an army of angels to destroy Rome and elevated himself as king, but he didn't. Why? Because he was surrendering to the will of God. He was doing what God called him to, and God had a greater purpose for what Jesus was doing. He was redeeming his people from their sins. And so in following the footsteps of Jesus, we submit ourselves to governing authorities. Knowing that they only have the power that God gave them, we're submitting first and foremost to God and then to them. We have to have integrity, we have to balance. When government's calling us to do something contrary to the law of God, we don't follow that. But otherwise, we obey the law and we're good citizens, we have a good reputation with the government around us. Jesus didn't capitulate to the government's demands that were contrary to God's truth. If Jesus would have said at any point, like, I'm not the son of God, I'm not the Messiah, he wouldn't have been crucified. If he wouldn't have said he was God, he wouldn't have been crucified. But he did because it was true. And so he had the resilience and the determination to do the will of God even in the midst of unjust suffering at the hands of the government. And the key is that we entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Again, what a comfort. What a comfort that we can entrust ourselves to God. So that even if we choose to follow the legal recourse and we don't receive justice, no injustice is going to go unpunished in the end. God judges justly. That's a great comfort to those who haven't received justice in this life. To those who are victims of heinous abuse. We can entrust ourselves to God. So if we don't receive it now, we know that God will deal out and dish out perfect justice in the end. Because we so many times get it wrong. And yes, it is government's job to punish those who do evil. So again, that's why we can follow the legal recourse that's available to us. That's their job. So many different scenarios that this applies to. It's hard to, hard, to, hard to teach through this, right? And to say, paint broad brush. For example, we're called to follow Jesus, right? Trusting ourselves to God. Peter specifically says, don't retaliate. Don't, Jesus didn't threaten when he was reviled. He didn't threaten back, right? 
years ago, I was reading a popular Christian book with a group of guys, and in the book, it talks about how to raise boys specifically. And the author says, um, if says that if you, to teach your boys that if they get punched in the face, punch them back, <laughs> right? And in the group conversation, I was talking through this with the guys, and I was like, hey, guys, I'm just going to bring this up. Like, I don't know. That doesn't sound like Jesus, right? That doesn't sound like what Peter says here. It doesn't sound like anything the New Testament authors teach. Because everywhere throughout the New Testament, it's we don't retaliate. That was one of the, the calling cards, the markers of the early church, is when they were imprisoned, when they were mistreated, Suffered injustices. We don't call those just. They're not just. They're injustices still, right? It's important to make that distinction. But when they suffered those things, they didn't fight back. They didn't retaliate. They never did. Because they were following in the footsteps of Jesus. So just like the household codes of the Roman culture, they built their entire culture on it, we build our entire life on Jesus. Our entire ethic is rooted on Jesus. And so we don't retaliate. We don't fight back. That's a hard truth to live in. Now, again, nuance it. Right? Don't put yourself in those situations. <laughs> Defend yourself if you need to and get out of there, right? Like, but don't fight back. That's the key. We don't retaliate because that's not what Jesus did. And that has to be our heart's posture. Completely entrusting ourselves to God that he will deal justice in the end. And so, even if we don't receive justice now, that's okay. God will deal out justice in the end. Finally, what Jesus was doing on the cross, Peter realized later, was he was bringing his people back into the fold, to the shepherd and to the overseer of our soul, so we can trust in God, so we can rest in that. What Jesus has done on the cross has brought us back to God. Jesus is the shepherd and the overseer of our soul, and so we should rest at peace in him, knowing that he's got us for eternity. And even if we experience injustice now, it won't always be that way new creation, we will be fully under the care and protection of the overseer and the shepherd of our souls. And we experience that in part now, and then we will experience it in full then.